continuing our study of Paul's letter to the Philippians, joyful together, joyful together. So see, throughout the letter of Philippians, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and joy is the theme of this letter up and down. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. We'll hear him say in today's passage, complete my joy. It's joy up and down, but it's not just an individual joy. It's a joy in community. It's being joyful together. And we've got some really um, important, one of arguably one of the most important passages in the whole New Testament that we're going to take up today, uh, time willing. We'll, we'll see how it goes. But uh, let me say a word of prayer and we'll dig in. Dear Lord Jesus, you came down in order to rescue us for yourself. You are the vine, we are the branches. And we pray, O oh Lord, that as we study your word this morning, that you would continue nurturing and nourishing us with your truth. We pray in your name. Amen. All right. So yes, go to uh, Philippians chapter one, picking up with verse 27. Before I do though, any lingering questions or, or comments from what we talked about last week at the, uh, in the beginning of Philippians here. Yeah, Tara. Communion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Telling him. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Right. Okay, so this is a great question. So um, Tara's question. So last week we talked about how um, Paul says to live is Christ, to die is gain. And how whether we live, whether we die, we are the Lord's. And I gave kind of this overview of what we call eschatology or the biblical teaching about the end times. How, okay, when we die, what happens is our soul is separated from our body. Our soul goes to be with Jesus. Our body is laid in the tomb until the day when Jesus comes again. Soul and body are reunited. So the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. Tara's question is, so when it comes to communion, is there a sense in which we are enjoying communion with the saints who have died before us, who are in heaven? And I would say 100% yes, absolutely. So when we talk about um, that phrase, the communion of saints. Sometimes people hear that and say, think that it's just a line about Holy Communion. And um, in fact, it's, it's about precisely this, that the church, the body of Christ transcends not only space, you know, we're fellow believers with people on the other side of the world, but also time so that we are knit together in the mystical body of Christ uh, with, with saints who have died, with those who are yet to live in a sense, um, we're already combined and brought together with them. And this is why um, there's that powerful line in the, in the Sanctus, or, you know, therefore with, ang- uh, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name. That's what sometimes, Connie, are you here? Um, it's like, uh, special bells at that time. And that's kind of like uh, my understanding is that it's sort of symbolic of the angels and the saints in heaven. So yeah, totally. I think it, it, it underscores how as um, believers and as part of the body of Christ, um, we divine, we feel the struggle, and glory shine for, them, for all the saints. So yes, great, great question. Thank you. Yeah. Follow up. Good. Mm. Who told you that? 
question. Okay, but continue, yeah. Yes. I think it's Eric Clapton, but uh, well, what it, what it says, I mean, this is what's so fascinating, and I don't have a, a conclusive answer to this. What it says that every tear is wiped away. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So Tara's asking like, okay, you know, we'll talk this way. People in heaven looking down on us, seeing us in our sinful nature. And yeah, that's definitely something the scripture does not make clear of one way or another. Uh, it, it's possible. Um, people will point to the parable of uh, the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, although that's kind of the opposite. The, the rich man's in hell. Um, and he's, he's talking, but I think Jesus uh, purposely, purposefully exaggerates there. He's making a, a different kind of point. Um, but yeah, I can't, I can't say for certain. And as for the tears in heaven go, I mean, um, again, it's on the other hand, God's wiping away tears. Are they tears of joy? That's possible too. Um, so anyway, Chip, do you have a question? Okay. You're poised. Like you're about to raise your hand. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay, any other questions lingering from last week? Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Yes. Yep. So, okay, so Esther asks about um, in Revelation, uh, I think it's in chapter six, maybe, um, there's the saints under the altar crying out to the Lord, How long, O Lord? Which to me, I think, is a, a point for the belief that you don't just fast forward to the resurrection, but there is some sense still of, of temporality. Maybe it gets sped up, just like if you listen to a podcast, you can do it at like two times speed. Maybe we're able to do that in heaven. I don't know. Okay, it's total, total conjecture at that point. Um, but it does seem to be that there's some sense of that waiting still uh, and anticipating and looking forward to, okay, Lord, act. Do what you have promised that you're going to finish. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thought. But I don't think that it's a, an agonizing one. It's not one of anguish, but it's more one of wondering expectation. The way that my kids ask, like in the run-up to Christmas, how long? How long until, until we get to open those gifts, right? So that's, I think that's kind of the, the sense of it. Good. Any other questions, follow-ups from last week? All right, let's dig into um, chapter 1, verse 27. And uh, as we have been reading and studying the last few weeks, I've been trying to remind us that this is a letter that this would have first been read aloud to the congregation at Philippi. And so let me read aloud to you from the section that we're going to look at um, this morning, and then we'll double back and go more deeply into it. Paul continues, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love 
being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hmm. All right. A lot here, as you can tell. So let's go, go back to the beginning of that passage, starting with verse 27. And it's picking up from where Paul left off. And he was, he's been um, kind of letting the Corinthians or the, the Philippians know how he's doing his personal welfare. He's given kind of the, the welfare of the gospel. And here he's going to talk about living lives as the church worthy of the gospel. And you might think of this as kind of evangelical citizenship, evangelical citizenship. Uh, let me show you what I mean by that. So in verse 27, it says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's the way that the ESV translates it. I want to share with you the Greek word there um, in verse 27 that's translated as your manner of life. Let your manner of life. The Greek word is palatiuesthe or palatiumai, palatiumai, from which we get political and other words from that, uh, that same root. Um, the, the sense of it is not just your, your manner of life, but how you live in public. See, He's addressing, again, not just individually, but them as the church. Let the way that you live as citizens, um, as citizens, we would say, of both earth and heaven, only let that way of life be worthy of the gospel. See, And that's why I call it an evangelical citizenship. Okay, saying living as citizens of God's kingdom, even as we are also citizens of this, this earth and doing so in a way that brings honor and glory to God and to his gospel. And Paul's going to um, draw out three ways in which they do that in this passage here, that they are to be together, together for the gospel, together in faith and together in suffering. Okay, those three things together for the gospel, together in faith and together in suffering. First thing he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now, this is a really important, powerful message of Paul, I think, um, especially in our day to day, because you imagine the Philippians and Paul is writing to them. They're surrounded by opponents of the gospel, literally people who are set against the message of the gospel and the temptation of Christians and of the church in every age, whenever you have opponents, people who are pressing in against the church, trying to, to compromise that message, even persecuting in the Philippians case, even persecuting the cause of Christ. The natural temptation for Christians in that moment is to lapse into a posture of what we are against, of what we are against. And we start listing off, here's all the things that we are against. We're against this. We're against that. We're against this. We're against that. 
And I think it's understandable because we're like, hey, we, we need to, to call out those things that are uh, very real threats to the message of the gospel then and now. And we still need to be aware and sensitive to those things and not just kind of lapsing into a, an easy, breezy, milk toast faith that says, hey, whatever the world wants. Um, I often quote G.K. Chesterton in this regard, where G.K. Chesterton says, um, only a, a dead thing always goes with the stream. Only a living thing can go against it. Okay. So to be sure, as believers, we are not just going with the flow. Okay. We go against the stream, the cultural and worldly stream in many, many ways. But if that's all that we do, and if that's all that we're known for, we fundamentally betrayed our calling to be salt and light in the world. And this is why Paul says, when it comes to our evangelical citizenship, the first thing he says, he doesn't talk about what we're against, but he says that we are striving side by side for the gospel. For the gospel. Um, what do you guys think? What's your sense? I mean, in our contemporary culture in America, are Christians more known for what they are for or for what they are against? What is your impression? Do we, do we have a, that reputation that we are more known for what we're for or are we more known for, for what we're against? What would you say? Say again? Sure. A mix between. Yeah. I think that that's probably the case. Yeah. Esther. Sure. Yeah. Right. Right. I, I think that that's an important point. Esther says the most vocal, the loudest voices that we often hear from Christianity are the against voices. As Hans says, it's the, in actuality, it's probably a lot more mixed or that in actual fact, most Christians are a lot more for things than they are against things. And again, there are things that we need to be against. You mentioned abortion. Yes, we are against abortion, although I think that's why it's important also to say even more than that, we are pro-life, right? Pro-life. Um, so you say, well, that's just a semantic thing. That's, that's flipping it over. In some cases, it can be that. But I think if you don't start from a place of here is the fixed point that I'm against, and put it another way, it's hard to drive in reverse, see? It's hard to drive in reverse. And if we're only ever what we're against, it's like we're driving in reverse. If we have a fixed goal before us that we are moving towards, yes, you are also going away from other things. In that sense, you are against it, but that's not your, your basic posture. Does that make sense? And so I think as Christians following Paul here, we have to start with being for something, for the gospel. Yeah. Other reflections on that? So first part of this evangelical citizenship. The next thing is that we are together in faith. So Paul goes on, he says, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should believe in him. Um, there's a, a great, another great word that Paul uses here, kind of surprising. Well, it's surprising in, in one sense, not surprising in the other. So he says, together in faith, it has been granted to you. And the word there comes from the same root, charis, as grace. So it's literally like it has been graciously given to you. To me, this highlights how faith itself is a gift of God. Like even our faith doesn't come from us. It's not that we are so smart that we were able to connect the dots. We're like, okay, we've got it. And the rest of the unbelieving world, they just need to, to get with it and recognize it. Even your faith is a gift of God. 
But then this also brings to the last part. So you're together in faith, but also together suffering. And here's the surprising way that Paul puts it here, because he says, it's been graciously given to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, this is a hard word, and maybe it goes along with the sermon today talking about pruning, but it's been graciously given to you that you get to suffer. Like, oh, okay, are there any other gifts that we can give, or is there a return policy with heaven? You know, um, or I think of Tevier and Fiddler on the Roof. Yes, we're the chosen people. Can't you choose somebody else once in a while? been graciously given to us to suffer. In what sense do you think we could think of suffering as being graciously given, as Paul's putting it here? Yeah, Hans. Well, I heard, I heard the uh, example. Sure. I'm dyslexic. Okay, Hans is dyslexic, yeah. Sure. And I come around and realize that God has blessed me. Yeah. Because I think different. Sure. And I look at things in a different way instead of the same way everybody else does. Yeah. And, I, and the things that I do because of that, uh, I, you know, when I was young, I didn't read very many books. Now I read, you know, you know dozens of books a, a, a year. Right. So, you know, I, I no longer think it's a curse, but a blessing. Sure. But to it's something else, it doesn't yeah. understand that God gives good gifts. Yeah. But, uh, yep. Yeah. yeah. To be and to be able to see that, I mean, the way that uh, Victor Frankl, the famous psychologist, man's search for meaning, put it, is you have a redemptive perspective on your suffering, and to see it as being part of God's greater work. And again, his, his work within us and his work, his work in the world. Now, what if we were to talk of more specifically, I think what, what Paul first has in view here, the suffering that comes from confessing Christ and that kind of active persecution. Now there, we can also think of it how it's graciously given. I mean, uh, the one I've been most challenged by in saying this other than St. Paul is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, great Lutheran pastor and martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He talks this way. I remember reading his book, The Cost of Discipleship for the first time. And him talking about the gracious gift of suffering, of persecution, and how he prayed that he would be worthy of that gift. And I was like, mm, not there yet, Dietrich. Thank you very much. I like that. I'm going to let you receive that gracious gift. But oof, the church throughout the ages has recognized this, that martyrdom, to be, to be counted a martyr uh, for Christ is like the, the highest gift. Um, I mean, uh, God works with all of us where we are. See, he doesn't, he doesn't demand that the smoldering wick have the faith of the martyr right away. He's always at work in us, but, um, it is a powerful message to say that suffering itself, especially suffering for the sake of the gospel is a gracious gift. Uh, yeah, Tara. The thief on the cross. Mm-hmm. Sure. Saved. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. It's so true. Tara brings a point, you know, the thief on the cross, he has to live a miserable life only in that last moment as he's saved and knows that comfort. But for those of us who believe, we are able to have that gift, even in the midst of, of suffering and struggle, to have that comforting faith. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard from God's people through the ages of like, I don't know how I would be getting through this if not for my faith, you know? Um, and it, it's so true. I mean, you look at other folks and um, Paul uses this word in that last verse. He says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And the word translated conflict there, sorry, I've given you a lot of Greek this morning, but um, it's the word agon from which we get like agonize or agonizing. But in Paul's time, an agon was a gladiatorial contest. And so he, Paul's comparing the life of faith to being a glad, did you know that you guys are gladiators, right? Some of you kind of look like Russell Crowe. Um, but uh, that he, he, I mean, there's just no, you just think about how different this is. From many times as modern Christians, we want to sell Jesus and convince people, oh man, Jesus is going to make your life better. Like if you just believe in Jesus, like, you know, things are going to go well for you. And that's not to say, of course, just like Tara was saying, of course, in the life of faith, in many ways, things are so much better. But Paul's like, yeah, but you're also getting thrown into the arena. See, now you're, you are going to be gladiators in the same conflict, but you're going to be in it together. You're going to be in it together. And that's the real important thing he wants to bring out for the Philippians. So this is, this is the, the, big takeaway in this first few verses of this passage, the church witnesses best in the public square, polytuomai, when she does so together, together for the gospel, together in suffering, together in the faith. Yeah, Gordon. Oh, it's always good to listen to Lutheran. Yes. Yeah. It, he had the eye, long eyelashes, but I know his wife. It worked out well for him. It, it all came together. Um, yeah, I just don't know how God is, is working in and through that. Okay, so then let's get into this, the next section, and um, chap, chapter two. And again, you recognize when you hear it, you think of it as a letter. Paul, in all likelihood, didn't write his letter with a table of contents and say, now moving on to chapter two. This is, it just goes right into it, right? So it says, you're engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and now here that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. But being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Stop there. So um, we've talked about how Philippians, more so than almost any other letter of Paul's, maybe the most, uh, has a very irenic sense, a very peaceful sense. There isn't like one big overriding conflict or issue that Paul is addressing. It's primarily just a letter of gratitude and joy. Like I said, it's kind of a fundraising letter. Um, he's just thankful for the gifts that the Philippians have given. But that's not to say, I mean, there's sinners there too, that there isn't anything that he needs to address. And what seems to be, if there's one thing the Philippians seems to be an issue is a sense of discord 
in the community. And of course, we can, you know, conjecture, try to figure out what might it be that it was. Um, some people have said perhaps um, there was a sense that Paul played favorites, um, whether it be played favorites with the Philippians generally against other churches or within the community. And this is a challenge for pastors sometimes like, oh, well, pastor likes so-and-so more than he likes me, this kind of thing. And sometimes that, that creates a, a sense of, of jealousy or um, discord within the community. But whatever the basis of it might be, whatever the roots of it might be, Paul wants to address that here. And he's going to do it in the most kind of intense, over-the-top way. I mean that in a, a good way. Um, starting with this passage, verses 1 through 4. Uh, it's interesting. There's actually, in the Greek, only one verb, one finite verb um, within these few verses. And the verb or the phrase is complete my joy. Complete my joy. So you might picture it like this, like sometimes you see those word clouds where there's a thing in the, in the center, one word in the middle, and then other things branching out from it. So at the center of these few verses is this, this is Paul's main point here, complete my joy. Okay. Now, how do we complete his joy? What are the threats to us completing his joy? These are the things that he's going to unpack. Um, and so here you have the, the basis of this um, um, injunction to complete his joy, the goal and the obstacles, the basis, the goal and the obstacles. So first of all, in verse one, you have the base, the bases. Okay. He's covering all his bases. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now, sometimes, um, oftentimes in English, when we use the word, if we mean that in a contrary to fact kind of way, which is to say, oh, well, you know, if I were six foot five, I would be an excellent basketball player. Clearly, I'm not. Ergo, I'm not. Um, we use if in that sense. Um, but in, in Greek and perhaps in English, you can also use it in such a way um, that it's if and you're assuming that what comes after is true. Okay. So it's a rhetorical device, really. Paul is not calling into question what he's going to say, but rather it, you could almost translate it as since these things are true. Yeah, yeah. When? Oh, uh, it could be when, when as well. Yeah, because it's, um, but I, I think he wants to, to say, this is all, this is already the case for you. This is already the case. So, and he's just heaping it up. So think of it as since, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from love, since participation in the spirit, koinonia, um, since there is affection and sympathy, Paul's just saying, look at all these wonderful gifts that you already have as, as believers, as those who, who belong to Christ, all of this is yours. Therefore, complete my joy. And why complete my joy? Or, or how, we might say? Um, complete my joy by being the same mind, the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He actually repeats himself there. I think to really make it clear, this is, this is what he designed, having the same love and being in full accord. It's just different ways of him getting at the same idea. Look, guys, I don't want you to be apart. I don't want you to be fighting each other. I don't want there to be discord in the community, but I want you to, to be together in this. One soul, one mind. He's going to circle back to the one mind thing in a couple of verses. Uh, but this is, this is his, his goal. Complete my joy by being together see by being together because we're joyful together but then in verses three and four he lays out the obstacles or the threats 
to this joy being completed to this uh, community. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, so if you were to summarize in a word, what's the principal threat to this kind of unity that Paul is talking about here? What would you say is the, the principal threat? How would you summarize, encapsulate what Paul's saying there? Yeah. Selfishness. Yeah. Looking out for number one, right? To the contrary, Paul says, don't do anything from selfish ambition, from rivalry, from conceit, that sense of how can I just climb over my brother? See, how can I exalt my own status? But rather, I mean, this is just such a powerful um, statement and assertion. Um, consider, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, I can't say this for certain, but I think Paul probably has in view here when he's talking about this, um, Jesus's discussion with the disciples in Matthew 18. So go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 18. This is page 823 in the Pew Bible. And you remember this moment. Uh, the disciples come to Jesus. It's another one of those three stooges kind of things. Hey, Jesus, we got a question for you. Who's the greatest, or, or we might put it this way, who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven asking for a friend? You know, uh, I don't want to know, but I mean, John over here, he keeps bugging me about it. So who is the, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, a couple of things are important for us to understand what, what the Lord's saying there. First of all, and this is a pastoral commonplace, so you've heard this before, but in that, in that culture, kids were not viewed the way that we view kids, which is, you know, we put pictures of them up on social media and aren't they cute? There's a little naked baby with his naked bottom holding the blanket. We're like, oh, my God, that so cute. From that culture, they viewed kids as being primarily a hindrance and an annoyance, okay? Because, and, and think about this, this makes sense. And some of you grew up, grew up on a farm, okay? What are kids best for? If, you know, you got a big family, if you're working together as a family, what are they good for? They're farmhands. They're laborers, right? Um, until they can do that, they're just another mouth to feed. Now, I overstate the case, but it culturally, Culturally speaking, kids were not viewed in, certainly not in the kind of um, romantic or sentimental way that we view them today. When Jesus puts a child in their midst, they're not thinking, look at how innocent he is. Okay, we need to be cute and innocent like that one. Instead, what, when they look at a child, the first thought that's going through their minds is, look at the person who has the lowest status among us. The one who has, is hanging off the bottom rung of the social ladder, Okay. That's how kids were viewed down there with slaves in that culture, see. Um, and so when Jesus brings a child into them, he says, humble yourself like this child. He's saying, oh, I mean, this is a radical statement. And so this is the second thing we need to understand. When he says, humble yourself, we think of this many times um, in, the, in the sense of humble yourself. Uh, so think less of yourself. Look down on yourself. Say bad things about yourself. That's what it means to, to humble yourself. No, that's not what, what Jesus is talking about. It's much more, 
practical. And it's what Paul's talking about. Consider others more significant than yourself. Put them before yourself. Put the needs of others. As To go back to Philippians, look out not only for your own needs, but also for the needs of others. Um, and we'll flip back there now to Philippians. And in fact, it might be even stronger than that. Um, so, you may know, in our uh, New Testament, there's um, little um, textual variants all over the, the text of the New Testament. And 99.9% of these have no bearing on the real, the real uh, theological significance of a passage. There are some that do. There's a few that do. And so it's the job of what are called text, textual critics, or text critics, text critical scholars to wade through. I mean, it's kind of one of these things where it's a good problem to have. We have thousands upon thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament, over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. Not all of them are, are complete. We have fragments, all these sorts of things. But compared to any other ancient text, it's not even close. It's not even close. When you look at something like, uh, well, certainly something as far back as like the Iliad and the Odyssey, we have a handful of manuscripts, like literally less than 10. When it comes to the New Testament, we've got thousands. Um, it's a good problem to have, but sometimes there are little differences. Let me share with you a textual variant. The ESV says, uh, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Um, in some uh, texts and uh, some manuscripts, it leaves out that little word also. So that it says uh, just flatly, let each of you look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Whoa, now he's, he's really not around. He's just saying, all right, don't worry about yourself. And if, if that's the case, we might hook that up with Jesus's words in Matthew 6, 33, where it's seek ye first the kingdom of God and uh, all the rest will be given to you besides. Don't worry about your own interests. Look only to the interests of others. Now, um, that's possible. That's possible. But I also had, I remember 12 years ago, I was on Vicarage and I was teaching Philippians group like this, we were going through this passage and I shared the same thing with you. And this woman um, uh, is, is crying as I'm talking about this. And I was real forceful, young, zealous, vicar guy. And I was like, and that's what it actually, that's what it says. And that's what we should go with. Don't look out for your own interests. Only look to the interests of others. Don't care about yourself. And I was really going after it, right? She's crying. And uh, what was her name? And you might remember the Peggy, I think was her name. I want to say it was Peggy. And Peggy's crying. And I'm like, Pe Peggy, are you, are you doing okay? I can't remember if I asked her in the context, probably after the fact, talked to her about it. And she said, Pastor, I hear what you're saying. I agree with it 100%. I got to tell you, I've been through a very abusive marriage. I went through a very abusive marriage. And uh, I, I had this sense that I should not be looking out for myself, but only looking for the, the needs of others. And uh, my husband used me and he wrung me out like a sponge. He just abused me up and down. When I hear that word, that just brings me great pain and grief. She's like, I'm not saying that's not true, but I'm just saying like this, this is where that, that leaves me feeling. And um, so I've, I've come to recognize in my growing pastoral wisdom, slowly but surely, um, I think we, we, we don't want to press too hard on that because Jesus does say, love your neighbor as you love yourself, right? Um, if you don't 
if you don't care for yourself and love, love yourself, then you're also not loving others. I don't want to sound like, you know, like Dr. Phil here either. Okay. Some, somewhere in between Dr. Phil and the apostle Paul, um, leaning more toward the apostle Paul, but, um, yeah, and go ahead. Thank you. That's perfect. Exactly. So when you get on the airplane, you remember these times, it's the thing with the wings we used to get onto. Yeah. Um, they, they tell you with the masks that are going to come down and this happened, you know, whenever we're traveling with the kids, the stewardess comes by. Now I just want you to know, make sure you put the mask on yourself first. And the reason is because if you don't put your mask on first, you're no good to, to the kids too. put it on yourself. Then you're able to put it on him. That's Perfect. And I think that's the way to understand this. Look out not only for your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, if somebody is really pushing hard on only their own interests, then I might pull out this variant and say, you know, actually, this might actually just say, look out for the interests of others. You should not be looking out for your own interests the way that you are. So just leave that to you. But questions or, or thoughts about that? I probably way overcomplicated things there, but. Well, this is what I'm saying, is that the, the variant leaves out that only. And, well, both of those. Yeah. Yeah, it's one, it's one word, but in the English, to smooth it out, they have to put in two words. But, yeah. So, look out not only, but also. Um, so, if you went with that, it'd be, look out, don't look out for your own interests, but for the interests of others. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think it's a helpful, but also. Yeah, I do. All right. It looks, yeah, go ahead, Hans. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, it occurs all the time. Yes. And it occurs today. It's like those some churches, oh, I have to be a contemporary service versus a traditional service. Yeah. I need to let them know about it. Yeah. You know, whatever is that. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, looking out for the, the needs of others as well. And I mean, I'll just tell you, as a, as a pastor, like, and as, for leading in our church, I'm mean, going to just be very honest with you all, especially over the last year. It's been a struggle, right? Everybody has different desires, different needs. My goal as pastor has been and will continue to be just what Paul's talking about here, keeping the church united together. Okay. How can we do that? How can we accommodate and bear with one another in love, knowing that it's always going to mean dying to ourselves in some ways? It's always going to recognize, okay, not how I would do things, but I love my brother. I love my sister in Christ. And so I'm going to keep walking that way. That for me is like, that's my guiding star in leading the church. How can we stay together as the body of Christ? Yeah. And it's hard. Because, da, 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 still sinners here. Yep. Saints, yes, but also still sinners. And that's why the big takeaway for me in these uh, first few verses of chapter two is unity starts with humility. Unity starts with humility. Unity begins with all of God's people checking their own needs at the door and saying, I want to look out not only for myself, but also for the, for the needs of, of others. See, I want to consider theirs even more important 
than myself. It's a hard thing to do. We all need to be reminded of it uh, constantly. And again, it doesn't mean that you just set aside all of your, all of your needs and your interests, but that you keep it uh, also the needs of others too. So, all right, we didn't get to um, those next few verses and I, we're probably gonna need all of next week to dig into it because uh, there's so much there. But thank you for uh, your attention participation today. We'll see you next week.